Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 108. Thanks to everyone that has spent the year listening to the podcast. I'm filling up the queue with more episodes, more videos, and more of everything, really. So going to make some very cool announcements soon about some more series projects throughout 2020. So if you liked the Road to Hoylake series that led up to the Walker Cup this year, you're going to get more of that next year. The Cyber Monday deal is still up on the website. If you didn't see the deal, you get a trucker hat of your choice, two towels, one for you and one for a friend, and one of our custom logo metal ball markers. 25 bucks. So check out the website. It's thebackoftherange.com slash holiday deal. Go pick up some merch while everything is still in stock and get it done quick before I get out of here for the holidays. That way you can get it next week. Having said that, we just passed over 100 reviews in Apple Podcasts, which is incredible and very much appreciated. And I was planning on sending something special to the 100th review, but I didn't see any comments in the review or anything to let me know who left it. So let's try something different. Uh, see if I can get some holiday cheers sent out to you before Christmas. So if you're listening right now and you have not left a review, leave one and then shoot me an email with your contact information. I'll send you a towel. I'll send you something. Do it before Monday. My email address is ben at thebackoftherange.com. Hopefully that's simple enough. Get that done. I'll get some stuff out to you. Let's get started with this week's episode. We catch up this week with four-time PGA Tour winner and member of the Champions Tour, one of the most consistent players in the history of the PGA Tour, Bob Estes. So for those of you that follow the PGA Tour closely, you'll remember that Victor Hovland, former guest here, uh, national champion Oklahoma State, he set a new record by scoring in the 60s for 18 consecutive PGA Tour rounds. Whose record did he break? Well, that belonged to Bob Estes. He set that back in 2001. Bob played collegiately at the University of Texas. He racked up numerous honors and awards in his amateur career. 1988 was his year. No argument there. He won the Haskins. He won the Nicholas Award. He was the NCAA Player of the Year, and his final amateur tournament was the Texas State Amateur, which, of course, he won. We spoke about his early success as a professional. He won his first pro tournament before getting to the PGA Tour, but once he got there, he won the Rookie of the Year. Other than time away from the game due to some injuries, he's basically been on tour for 30 consecutive years. Now, there's a lot of numbers I could throw at you about Bob's career, but the one that really stands out to me he played over 650 PGA Tour events and made the cut about 70% of the time. Remarkable achievement. And how do you do it? Well, that's what we got into in this episode. We covered a lot of topics, probably needed some more time, but we chatted about the Champions Tour, Pro-Ams. Yeah, we're going to need to have Bob back on the podcast for a follow-up episode. But let's get the first installment out to you right now. Bob, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. How are you? Oh, doing great. Looking forward to it, Ben. Well, let's start off with a simple one. Um, the name of the podcast is The Back of the Range. You've had this incredible career on the PGA Tour. You're a rookie in 89, so you, you know what it's like to have longevity. What does your offseason look like? What does your practice routine in the offseason look like? Maybe now, uh, 
you know, possibly compared to what it was like um, when you're on the PGA Tour full time. What does your off season look like to get ready for uh, for the season on the Champions Tour? Well, virtually every year, um, whether it was the PGA Tour or the Champions Tour, my main focus, since I only had about six to eight weeks, really, um, away from tournament golf, was training. So I have a great trainer here in Austin who is a world-class pole vaulter, and I'm still training year-round. I just can't do it you know, quite as often or with as much intensity sometimes as um, I can in November and December and maybe part of January. Sure. So. My first tournament won't be until the second week of February in Naples, um, so I have even more time to train. So we're picking up the training a little bit here in the off season. I needed to get back a little bit more upper body strength for different reasons, hopefully to hit a little bit further and hopefully to um, you know be a little bit better at digging out of the rough and you know injury prevention and stuff like that so i'm not getting crazy with it like sure. it sounds like bryson dechambeau might be <laughs> man but are you are you I reading am... are you reading my notes because you already talked about your pole vaulting trainer which i have to ask you how that happens and then you talked about bryson who bryson looks like he ate bryson and became a bigger bryson so yeah so so you're going easy because you're just trying to do injury prevention but also pick up strength I'm not going easy. I'm just not going as hard as Bryson. I've lifted heavy in the past okay, and, and got too big and too tight. And at some point I had to back off of that. I knew I, I, I never was a great ball striker. I hit it pretty good at times, but I, I needed to try to figure out if I wasn't swinging the club as well or hitting the ball as well as I thought I should and needed to because my swing wasn't good enough or because I was just a little bit too thick and tight through the chest and shoulders. And as it turns out, it was a combination of both. And so once I um, quit lifting quite as heavy and um, got a little bit more upper body mobility back, I was able to, um, you know, figure out that yeah, my, my golf swing needed to change a little bit too. So over the last five or six years, I um, strengthened my grip. And that helped me get a little bit um, more square as opposed to open um, with my shoulders and forearms and address. And so then I was able to swing the club a little bit um, better and more freely and hit it you know, straighter as opposed to hitting big cuts like I, I used to. Yeah. Boy, we're going to jump around because just by you saying that opened up a, another question. Before we talk about your start, and you know, I want to hit on a little bit of your career at the University of Texas, one of the most prolific careers in, in college golf. With I'm not sure how many people know what you did in college, so we're definitely going to hit on that. But but you just brought this up of trying to hit it farther and getting stronger. You know, you had this great amateur career, this great collegiate career. You were rookie of the year on the PGA Tour. Uh, was it a challenge for you to kind of stay in your lane as far as like, hey, this is what has taken me this far. I know I can be successful. But when you get out on tour and you see different swings and you see different instructors, other people surpassing you or different, is it hard? Was it hard for you to just kind of stick to what you knew and ignore the noise of, oh, I need to get, I need to do this. I need to switch to these set of irons. How, how is this professional to try and stay focused on what has worked for you in the past? Well, when I first um, got out on tour, I mean, I, you know, and, and I wouldn't say that 
you know, I was a world beater by any means. I mean, golf was never that easy for me. I worked really hard at it. Right. And, um, you know, had a, a pretty decent record coming out of college in amateur golf. But there were still plenty of guys that beat up on me all the time. And we talked about a few of those guys later if you want to. But <laughs> anyway, okay. but as far as um, when I first got out on tour, one thing that I quickly realized was that I, I didn't hit the ball well enough. I usually survived by just keeping the ball in play for the most part. And then I had one of the best short games in the world, um, you know, at that time and, and throughout most of my career. Um, if you look at the statistics, um, my best statistic was almost always scrambling. And that's also why I was able to stay on tour for so long because sure. I never hit it quite as good as I needed to be one of the very best players in the world. Um, and so I was searching and working on things all the time, making equipment changes as I thought I needed to, to improve my ball striking, work with different teachers, not a lot of teachers, but you know, some, and, um, it just never, never quite worked out. It never quite got to the point where I hit it, um, as good as I felt like I should until that stretch in, um, 2001, um, through, part of 2003 maybe when I went to a 10 finger grip or a baseball grip and I did win three times in a 13 month stretch and also won the fall finish one of those um years and um so so I, I got to the point where I was hitting it pretty good but I was kind of limited because I couldn't hit it quite as far as I felt like I needed to to really keep up and compete um so that was something I maybe shouldn't have gotten away from, and I actually could be getting back to it here during this offseason. So we'll see how it goes. There you go. Well, I, you know, like I mentioned, you, know, you played at the University of Texas, you know, three time All American, your 88 Player of the Year, won the Nicholas uh, Award, won the Haskins Award, uh, you know, won a state amateur championship uh, at, at Texas. And well, here I have a, I have a few questions for you as far, as far as your collegiate career and amateur career. So you have these amateur wins and you have these collegiate wins. I'm just curious. I was the U.S. Amateur or Walker Cup on your radar any of those years? Um, you know, you can you can make an argument that in '88 you're the best player in college golf. I know that was kind of the middle year between you know the the Sunningdale Walker Cup in '87 and Peachtree in Georgia in '89. Can you do you have any recollection of what that was like as far as Walker Cup or, or USAM around that time? Well, of course, I would have loved to have played, you know, in the Walker Cup, and I played a couple of USAMs. Yeah, I got beat by Burr Plank in the second round the year that he won at Oak Tree at his home club while he was there in college. But um, you know, Walker Cup was something that that would have been incredible to to be a part of. But my main goal all along. Uh, besides winning the NCAA championship as a team and an individual was to go straight from college to the PGA tour. And I did do that. So no, after um, the NCAA, my senior year in June of 88, I played the Texas state amateur a week or two later and I won that finally. Um, so that was a big win. So that was, that was my last amateur tournament. And then I think the very next week I played my very first professional tournament in Missouri, the bogey Hills invitational. Hills, yeah which was the biggest mini tour tournament at the time. And I won that. So my very first week as a professional, I won that tournament and won $40,000. so I got off to a great start. And, um, and during that same time frame, that summer and um, fall, 
I played in some state opens, you know, some other mini tour events. I got five invites to play in PGA tour events while I was going through the qualifying process. And I had to go through three stages. There were three stages back then. I think there's four now. Um, I'm not, I'm not for sure about that. that no, that's you're right. It's, well, it's, well, it's pre-Q. I know yeah, the qualifying pre- is basically, you know, for the um, the uh, corn fairy tour. Yeah. But anyway, I had to go through all three stages back then, and I I made it through, tied for I think 32nd or fifth or something at the the final stage out in um, Palm Desert, and went straight to the tour. So uh, my rookie year was 1989. Yeah. You know, we're recording this the week, um, you know, in a few days, the uh, Q School finals are going to start for Corn Ferry Tour uh, down here in uh, South Florida, actually in Central uh, Winter Garden, Florida, or Orange County National. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you know, being a rookie of the year in 89. I know you had to go back to Q School just a couple times, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts uh, on, you know, what qualifying for the PGA Tour looked like uh, back then for you, where, you know, once a year you go to this, this one Q school and that gets you right back onto the PJ tour. Now it's Q school can only get you to the corn Ferry tour. And then you have PJ tour Canada, you know, the Kenzie tour and Latin America and China, all these, all these event metal tours, you know, there's more places to play, but there's less money to make on those tours. Uh, I mean, if you were starting out right now, how, how much harder would it be starting out now compared to perhaps having that one, jump from Q school that takes you to the PGA tour. Well, it may depend on how you mean that because, you know, the, there are so many great players now, you know, coming out of college or uh, from academies, you know, or all around the world. So um, as far as the, the depth of um, players, it, it's probably, you know, it's, it's only going to get tougher. It's probably mm-hmm. as tough as it's ever been, but um I know when they uh, made that announcement many years ago that qualifying school was not going to get you directly to the PGA Tour, but to the, you know, buy.com or web.com or whatever it was at the time, um, a lot of people didn't necessarily agree with that. Um, You know, some players probably need that time, and they've admitted it on the secondary tour, um, but others were, you know, good enough to go straight to the PGA Tour without, you know, needing a year on the the tour below the PGA tour. So um, really it was just kind of an individual thing. It wasn't necessarily good or bad. Um, And then obviously players sometimes play those, um, a few events that they're allowed to play in like Jordan speed and uh, make enough money or even win and go straight to the PGA tour. So um, yeah, there's, there's different ways to do it, but uh, the quality of play is just getting better and better. You, uh, you mentioned speed. I know we've talked about Texas, uh, so many great players coming out of the University of Texas, whether it's him, whether it's, uh, you know, Justin Leonard and Brad Elder and obviously uh, Kite and Crenshaw, uh, just legends. I'm just uh, I'm just curious, how much uh, how much interaction do you have or have you had with the uh, with the Texas golf team, uh, you know, since becoming professional? I know you're a big Texas guy and, and just curious, like, what's do you go back to to visit with the teams or what's been your uh, interaction with Texas golf? Well, I do some not as much as I would have liked. Um, part of, you know, I, uh, I'm a member here at Austin country club. I'm also an honorary member at the UT golf club, member at the Austin golf club. So I have different places to, to play and practice when I'm in town and I haven't spent as much time at the UT golf club as I probably would have liked getting to know, you know, more of the players better over the years. 
uh, you know, I've, I've met a lot of them, chatted with a lot of them at different times. But, yeah, I haven't spent as much time with them as I would have liked. And part of that is, well, don't forget, I, I did have a, you know, a, a stretch where I was injured for quite a while. But um, in other times, I wasn't spending as much time in Austin. But, um, yeah, it would, it would have been nice to um, spend a little bit more time with them. I mean, I have spoken to the team a couple different times, played in many of the, the fundraiser golf um, tournaments that helped build the academy sure. for the teams, men's and women's, at the NT Golf Club. So, um, yeah, that is one thing I kind of regret is not having spent a little bit more time with them. But I struggled so much with my game and my equipment in particular that um, I, I I spent a lot of time just going back and <laughs> forth from working on clubs to hitting balls and trying to um, trying to learn how to swing the club better and hit the ball better and uh, spending as much time as I would have liked actually playing golf and maybe playing with more of the members on both teams. I saw a picture, I think it was in golf magazine or golf digest. It looked like it was the Texas team uh, getting on a private jet. It was Cole hammer and the, the cootie boys. And, uh, you know, a couple of the other guys are getting on this private jet to go to a golf tournament. How many private jet rides were you taking when you were a member of the Longhorn team back in the eighties? It seems like we did take just a few, but not many. Okay. Um, Usually, yeah, usually we were just, you know, either driving the tournaments. Um, yeah, our, our schedule wasn't nearly as good um, back then as what the teams have played recently. Yeah. Um, we, we played, you know, more tournaments in Texas, and we usually would go to some, some nice tournaments, whether it was a preview tournament for the NCAA, wherever that was, in California, Ohio, or wherever. Um, and uh, I remember, yeah, in Florida, I remember playing Greenleaf. Oh um, wow! Prior I, to the NCAA Green, tournament, I played a tournament at Greenleaf. <laughs> my story's probably, I, my story's probably not as good as yours, but uh, well, I don't have a story as much as I remember being really hard. So, um, but I think that was the fall of my um, freshman year when I maybe played that, and then um, at the NCAA tournament. But uh, yeah, that was that was a hard course. But uh, yeah, we. Um, we had we had a, a nice schedule, but um, yeah, we and we didn't take a couple of great trips as a team. One was a tournament in Japan, and one was just a golf trip to um, to Scotland to play a lot of the courses over there, which yeah. teams were allowed to do once every four years. So, so that was incredible. Got to do that. But yeah, we had a, we, had, we had two of our own tournaments here in Austin. Um, one in the spring and one in the fall. And I remember going to to Houston to play and Beaumont and Fort Worth and. Um, up to Dallas, at least for the Southwest Conference one year. But, um, yeah, they, they, they play a, a pretty incredible schedule now. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, they're uh, they're jet-setting and flying all over the place. So I, I want to ask you, I, I read a quote that you provided, and it's kind of stuck with me since just kind of getting set up for our conversation today. But um, you made this this comment that you you didn't really learn how to practice and prepare yourself until you got on tour can you explain kind of what you were what you're kind of alluding to there is like i guess how did you learn how to become a professional it's one thing about dreaming to be on the pga tour dreaming to win titles but i don't know how many people necessarily you know young kids college players are dreaming about a job and what goes into becoming a professional can you maybe speak to to how you learned how to do that? Yeah, and I can't remember exactly, you know, what I said in that quote because I was always a hard worker. Right. 
I played other sports growing up. I played high school basketball or basketball up through high school. So I, I definitely learned what hard work was all about then. <laughs> but, but, you know, but I was also, um, you know, pretty much addicted to golf as well. And so I, um, I was always, always practicing, you know, really hard because I was six months basketball, six months golf, a little bit of overlap on both sides. So I was always having to play catch up, you know, with my teammates and, um, and then in college, um, you know, I continued that, but then I kind of got burned out my sophomore year. So, um, yeah, there, there's different things that you learn over time. Um, sometimes I spent maybe too much time practicing out of the sand. I mean, I'm, I might go in the bunker as obsessed as I was with golf. I might go hit bunker shots for two hours, but then I then maybe go to the, the driving range to hit balls, and all I could do was hit, you know, pull cuts or slices. So I, yeah. I, at some point I finally learned that, um, you know, I don't need to spend that much time in the bunker consecutively, especially if I'm about to go, you know, hit balls and work on my swing a little bit. So, um, and at times I, I practiced too hard, especially after a round on tour. And at times I, I trained too hard during a tournament. So all of that stuff is, is very individualistic and you have to, to learn you know, what is best for you? Cause it's not always the same for every player. Yeah. You, you mentioned just being so driven and so devoted to it. And I think a lot of people are, it seems like part of the culture now on the PGA tour is talking about camaraderie and, and uh, you know, maybe these guys are a little bit closer and they're all rooting for each other. I'm just curious when you got on tour, what were you overly concerned with anyone else? Were you, looking to were you traveling with a certain set of guys were there people that were friends or, or you know what was kind of the, your I guess approach to it was it just I'm putting my head down I'm not here to make friends I'm here to make a paycheck or I'm here to further my career this is I'm just curious maybe what your approach to it was well I certainly was and I don't mean I don't, and I don't mean pay, I'm sorry I, let me rephrase I don't mean paycheck as I'm not trying to win I just but like I'm looking at it as like this is a career, this is a job. I didn't, um, let me rephrase that. Oh, no, I was thinking more of um, what you, you said about um, other players on tour. Okay. Um, when I qualified for the tour, there were only two other players um, who went directly from college to the PGA Tour, as I did. And those two were Billy Mayfair, who played at Arizona State, and Larry Silvera, who played at Arizona. Yeah. So a lot of, and, and a lot of my friends over the next you know, couple of years um, never made it to the tour. So I didn't really have any close friends um, or ex-teammates that were, that were playing the tour, um, you know, most of my career. So, I mean, I was friendly with a lot of guys, and there's a lot of amazing guys. Um, they're just super, you know, super nice, um, great guys. Um, and so, but, but not that I was, you know, best friends with, with any of them. I was, I was still pretty much doing my own thing and just yeah. trying to um, get as good as I could as quickly as I could. Um, but, you know, as far as say, for instance, playing practice rounds, I pretty much play a practice round with, with anybody or anybody that would play along with me. So a lot of times you just kind of show up to the tee and whoever's there, you all just hit it and go. And then, you know, that's how you get to know some players better as well. And caddies. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's different again for just about every player out there because 
Some of them um, maybe were teammates in college or some of them, maybe their wives are best friends and they become best friends. And so, you know, that's just kind of how some of that stuff evolves. You mentioned practice rounds. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's probably the work of it. Getting out to go play the term is actually the, the, you know, you can stop working and just go execute there. But along with practice rounds, you have the pro-am rounds. And I mean, you've played in over 650 PGA tour events and I can't even fathom how many pro-am rounds you've played in and all the characters you've seen. I mean, we could fill up an entire other episode with just pro-am stories, I could imagine. But um, We probably could. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to put you through that torture, but how, how did you approach pro-am rounds where you could at least get something out of it for your own game, but also provide a good experience for the amateurs that have paid to be in the pro-am did you have a kind of rule of thumb for how you approach those days and then after that i'll definitely at least ask you for one good pro-am story you gotta have at least one good one okay i think i have a few but (laughs) um yeah i think i for the most part from the very beginning understood the importance of the pro-am rounds right and a lot of times it's not that the the guys don't enjoy playing the pro-am rounds it's just how long they take and a lot of the amateurs get frustrated as well with how long they take because a lot of times we just have too many people on the golf course at one time but um but i always tried to um you know be very nice to you know the, the amateurs that were paying the money or they were clients of other um people putting up the money um so my caddy and I, no matter who my caddy was, I usually had great caddies that were very friendly and very helpful. So, yeah, so we tried to to be as, um, you know, courteous and friendly and helpful as we, we could be to the amateurs. Because, um, we, we, you know, we also know how, how much they appreciated that. And, um, you know, and that's kind of what they would expect, too. So, um, yeah, I just, I just, you know, at times, I was I was able to help some of the amateurs with their games and help them play better immediately, or I would offer advice or suggest advice, you know, for them to maybe work on after the after the round, you know, in the future, you know, or just asking questions about, you know, who they work with or what they're working on or have they ever worked with a teacher, things like that, um, you know, and also just try to make them understand that um, they don't need to stress out too much about how they play that we pretty much have already seen it all (laughs) you know playing in as many programs as we played yeah they don't need to try um, and press you so so a lot of times yeah they they talk about you know especially if it's the first time they've ever played a program and then on tour and they they hit that first tee shot and they don't hit it very good and and then they admit that's the most nervous they've ever been um, <laughs> on the first tee or hitting a shot or whatever. So we get to kind of joke and laugh about that, to, you know, try to calm them down and, you know, whatever way, you know, seems to work the best. So, yeah, so it's, um, I, we, and actually kind of changing up just a little bit. Um, this, this year in particular, um, for the last, you know, virtually all year long on the on the Champions Tour, uh, we you meet all kinds, um, you know, of, of amateurs. Some that are you know great players, some that never played, some that um, can be a little bit 
you know, obnoxious, <laughs> just like we can be at times. Of course. Um, or, um, or, um, or the amateur that's in your hip pocket all day long and um, just, um, you know, just machine guns questions at you from, <laughs> from start to <laughs> start to finish but um now i've kind of lost track of what i was going to tell you but um well, but yeah we, well, well, we've I'm... had a lot of uh, a lot of oh and no, i was going to say we, we we've had we we play, we met so many great people uh my caddy and i uh during the programs this year sometimes we played one sometimes we played two the way the the, the champions tour is, is set up sure. and we just met so many great people um this year playing in the programs it was it was just kind of fascinating. And, you know, my, my caddy was having a little bit of a health issue um, during the summertime. And we, um, we, we, we played with a group of doctors and this one doctor is still, you know, kind of checking up on him to make sure everything is good. And That's awesome. but, but that but the very next morning after the pro-am, um, he was able to go get a checkup. The doctor got him right in immediately to go get a checkup. And, um, you know, it's just kind of a temporary thing, but, um, Anyway, so stuff like that. So we yeah, we need a lot of really um, great people, men and women. So, well, I would also imagine that you would be, and the more I think about it, is you you would probably be one of the best draws for a pro am because ultimately, I'm guessing your your message to them is, look, this is how I've done it. I've worked really hard to get where I'm at and to stay on the PGA Tour, Champions Tour, whatever whatever tour, you're, whatever the program is. But there's no secret pill I can give you. There isn't some secret of the pros that I know about that you're never going to know about. I just work really hard at this, and that's something that they could really take away uh, and and put into their own games. Now they may never get to the level where they're a scratch or they're playing on the on the PGA Tour, but hey, if they can shave three four shots off their game, and also I'm sure that you work tons with them with a you know short game and also uh, being a great wind player. I mean, being from you know Texas, you got to be a great wind player. So I would guess you'd have tons of things to communicate. So. Those are the positives, but but or those are the the great things you've been able to communicate. But but let me ask you, what's the pro am round that just sticks out that like man only in a pro am would this story ever happen? Well, I, you know we we've seen just about everything like I mentioned earlier. I mean I've seen them go straight sideways. I've seen them hit them between their legs. I've seen them hit a shot that maybe hit the ball washer or a curb or something and went you know back behind us. So we would pretty much seen it all but one thing that always stands out that i'll never forget we were playing a pro am in um greensboro uh, at forest oaks um the venue has changed you know since then of course sure about as many years ago but and i think it was a money pro am i don't think it, it wasn't the wednesday pro am i think it was a money pro am that i'd agreed to play in and um we were playing with a bunch of um i think nascar truck series drivers oh nice and so um and i did get to drive on the charlotte motor speedway the very next day but that's just kind of yeah that was kind of part of the deal but back to to monday um we were were warming up for the round and the weather was really nice and then as soon as we got out to our hole as a shotgun start as soon as we got out to the hole we were going to start it began to rain and the the NASCAR truck driver that I was playing with, I'm pretty sure he had never played golf. I think that's I think that's what they were saying. So, you know, he had, you know, a, a bag of clubs that 
were not very good and um, not even sure if they were his, but we get on the first tee and I, I didn't, I don't remember seeing him any on the, um, on the driving range, but then we get on the first tee, all of a sudden it starts to pour and he doesn't have a glove. And so when it's his turn to hit, you know, he, he swings and the club came flying out of his hands and went high and up to the left into a tree. There was a big tree in front of that tee and to the left. And so the club came flying out of his hands and went up in the tree and got stuck in the tree. And I don't know if anybody ever was able to retrieve it, but that's a, that's a shot I'll never forget. Sounds like it. So that was, that, that was pretty interesting. I'm sure he was very embarrassed, but like I said, it was pouring rain and he didn't have a glove on and the grips were probably pretty slick and it just came flying out of his hands. Wow. And then um, earlier this, um, this year, I guess it was in um, September, I think it's when we played at the, Good Sporting Goods Open in New York. I had um, an amateur team of um, three men and one lady. And this one particular guy who wasn't the best player on our team, and it wasn't really his fault because, you know, a lot of times when you, when you tee off, you're, everybody's kind of going to their balls and trying to find their tee shots and stuff sure. like that. But three times during that round, the same guy almost hit the lady in our group with his, with his next shot. You know, one of those actually hit the cart while she was sitting in it. And the other two times almost hit her while she was out walking around. And a lot of times they thought they, they weren't um, even close to the line of play necessarily. But like I said, he, he wasn't very good. And, um, but three times she almost got hit. So that was kind of bizarre. So yeah, we, we, we see a lot of, a lot of interesting things on, um, on Wednesdays and, Thursdays now in the pro-ams. Oh, I, I can, I can only imagine. And then <laughs> I, I can imagine it's probably not going to change anytime soon. Um, you're talking about the champions tour. Uh, you had a major medical exemption in 17 and 18 on, on the regular tour. So you had a handful of events to play in and, and then also splitting time between the, the champions tour. You know, we see all those really super low scores and people think that, okay, well they just set the course up super easy um, totally not the case. It's just everyone out there is just so incredible. Uh, what was your first reaction or, or, you know, when you're 48, 49 years old, what was your first kind of thoughts about playing in the Champions Tour? Was it something that, you know, completely different to you or was it just going back to see guys you'd play the regular tour with? I'm actually very fascinated with the Champions Tour. I'd like to see it get bigger and bigger like, like it was during the days of, you know, Nicholas and, and Palmer and Trevino. Um, Talk to me a little bit about your experience on the Champions Tour when you first started out. The, the quality of play on the Champions Tour is better than what people realize. Right. And um, as far as getting bigger and better, that has pretty much everything to do with, you know, the most successful players from their PGA Tour days, European Tour days, committing to play on the Champions Tour or, you know, a fair number of tournaments on the Champions Tour. Just like Ernie Els is planning on playing, I think, a pretty – pretty full schedule on the, the champions tour um, this next year. He's already turned 50, but he turned 50 at the very end of the season. So he wasn't able to play an event yet. Right. But with Lucen is, you know, playing full time on the champions tour. Um, obviously Bernhard Longer, um, for a couple's plays when his back feels good. Tom Watson is, you know, continued to play, you know, he's not playing as much the last few years, but you know, it has a lot to do with, um, you know, the, the bigger names. Yeah. So we'll, you know, we'll see if and when Phil, um, play some on the champions tour. I can see him playing a 
few of the, the senior majors in particular, not necessarily in 2020, but maybe after that. So, um, so we'll see, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's getting more and more competitive. Um, let me mention this right quick. I, Cause you, you talked about me playing on both tours in 17 and 18 and on uh, 2017, my last event that year on the regular tour was the Wyndham at Fedgefield. Great golf course, fun to play. Everybody loves playing it. Um, it's not necessarily hard, not necessarily easy. But um, so I played that event. I think I, I think I missed the cut by a couple of shots, but you know, I played okay, but not good enough. And then the very next week, I go to um, Seattle, the Seattle area, to play in the Boeing. And so I played that event. And the, the, the setup and the course at the Boeing were more difficult on the Champions Tour than they were the prior week on the regular tour at Sedgefield. So after I played another tournament or two on the, well, I think it was that, yeah, maybe it was the next week, I can't remember. But I was asking some of the guys, I was like, are, um, are, the, are the courses always, <laughs> you know, set up as difficult on the Champions Tour? And they told me that in the last year and a half or so, which would take us back to the beginning of 2016, that that's when they started setting them up longer and tougher. Because except for maybe just a little bit of length, the you know the, they get the greens just as firm um, and fast as on the regular tours. So um, there's not that much difference from the Champions Tour setups to the regular tour setups, except for you know maybe a little bit of length. Uh, most weeks so it's um yeah it's a great tour and loving playing it is there anything and uh, i mean you, you already hit on on phil um you know whether he's going to play or not is there anything that not not to be critical of the tour but is there anything that you would like to see potentially changed or or um accentuated to maybe draw more attention whether it's in fan attendance because again you have you know, all these established players, everyone really knows the names. You have longstanding relationships with, with sponsors and with, with different, um, you know, with the galleries. You know, is there anything that maybe you think it can be done to, to boost it, or is it really just predicated on the bigger names playing on that tour? I think for the most part, it just has to do with more of the bigger names playing. I mean, okay. can you imagine some of the guys that could be playing right now that aren't and how many more people would come out to watch? Yeah. I mean, certain tournaments that, that we play, the attendance is incredible. Um, we play in a lot of golf star communities, you know, like the, the newer events um, that we have in South Dakota. You know, people come out by the tens of thousands, um, even in not so good weather sometimes. So um, there's, I, I guess, um, a lot of the talk at times is about the, the cities or the areas that we don't play in when maybe we could be playing you know, in those particular um, cities that the PGA Tour does not play in. But as I say that, we have 27 tournaments right now currently on the schedule. And if, if that went to, you know, 32 or 35 or whatever, like more like it used to be on the Championship Tour, are, are the guys, you know, willing to play that many weeks? Because the way the schedule is right now, we have the built-in off weeks. Sure. And so, so you know, it's just about right as far as how many tournaments guys want to play over the, the course of the year. And so, most weeks you get most of the best players playing. And if you if you added tournaments, 
um, you know, that would get diluted somewhat. So, um, you know, as things go and as business goes, you know, we're going to, you know, at times, you know, lose a sponsor or two and lose a tournament or two. And then, you know, they're always looking to replace those. And so then we may end up going to some of those places that we don't currently play that would love to have a, a Champions Tour event if they weren't going to get a PJ Tour event. So, so we'll see how that goes over the next few years. Yeah, I, I was speaking with uh, with a previous guest about uh, the Canadian Tour, and he was telling me how, yeah, uh, the McKenzie Tour, the, the fans would come out because that, you know, they just don't get golf uh, as much in that area, and they, they would just get huge, huge uh, crowds on uh, on Canadian Tour events. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. It'd be interesting to have some of these tournaments at, at places that don't normally see uh, tournament golf. But um, And we do play in Calgary, don't forget. Oh, so yeah. We get great crowds. Um, in Calgary, lots of people come out to watch. So, you know, they, they look forward to that and we do too. So, um, but, but that is, you know, a good example. There's other places, you know, Canada is a, a giant country. There's, you know, we, we could be playing in other, um, cities in, um, in Canada as well. Um, but there's, there's plenty of areas in the U S that we don't hit either that maybe we could, and maybe we will in the future. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to, you've been very gracious with your time. I just want to get you out of here on one thing. You know, you're from Texas, so used to playing in the wind. I know that one of your, um, you know, of all the tournaments that you've played in, I know that, that you're a big fan of playing in the Open Championship. I know that was one of your favorite majors that you've played in. Um, just kind of curious for people listening that are always trying to improve their game and knock uh, some shots off their uh, handicap, you know. Maybe they're not used to playing in high wind conditions. Maybe what are some of the key fundamentals that you try and keep in, in mind when trying to play in the wind? And then uh, if if you can, you know, maybe what's one of the worst conditions or what are some of the worst conditions you ever played in as far as wind? <laughs> gave, me, gave me a lot to think about there, especially as much as I've played in the wind. And, I know. Um, all the different opens that I've played in and things like that. But um, actually, one of the, the worst conditions that I ever played in was when I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school um, in Abilene, Texas, and I think there were five different cities and maybe seven or eight schools um, um, in our district. And one of our district rounds was in Odessa, Texas, at Odessa Country Club. And so we're playing our our team golf, mainly you know our district, regional, state in the in the spring, and that's when it can get really, really windy in Texas, as most people know. And so we were playing um, that particular day when the, the wind was gusting up to 60 miles an hour. And I mean, it was already howling um, that morning as we were, um, you know, getting ready to play. And there was a rule. My dad, to um, mention that, my dad was our high school golf coach. Okay. Uh, he was also a football, basketball coach as well. But then um, he uh, – he was a golf coach as well at McMurray before he got the golf coaching job at Evelyn Cooper where I played. So anyway, so if any one of the, the coaches decided that we were going to play on a particular day, we would have to play. And it was so bad. Don't forget how dusty it is out in West Texas. So the, the dust was flying. You know, I'm sure tree branches were coming down. But my dad knew that we had the best team and that we would deal with it the best. So my dad voted um, for us to play even though all the other coaches voted um, not to play. <laughs> so, so we played that round, and um, it was it was awful. I had dust in my eyes. 
Um, I remember actually being over against the fence on a par five that goes along the road or highway there. And I got hit from behind by a tumbleweed that, that actually knocked me to my knees. But I was tall and skinny back then, don't forget. So um, not much resistance on my part. But um, that, was, that was one of the most unbelievable rounds. I think I shot in the um, – probably low to mid nineties that day. And then one of my teammates who played at Stanford, Cole Thompson shot 76 in those conditions. And it was one of the best rounds of golf I've ever, I didn't see it of course, cause I was playing, but one of the best um, rounds of golf I've ever heard of. But um, that's how good our high school golf team was back then too. <clears throat> but as far as playing in the wind, um, you know, spin can be very dangerous and launching the ball too high. Not yeah. as good to do it now since the balls don't, um, curve quite as much as they did, but um, you know, you all, most everybody that plays golf has heard the, you know, the saying, you know, when you know when it gets breezy, swing easy, mm-hmm. and you know, you can take that too far and swing too easy, of course, and grip the club too lightly. But um, but yeah, but you obviously, unless you're playing over a, a hazard or something like that, you know, it's best to, to grip down and take more club and. Um, and swing a little um, smoother, I guess, because you're trying to impart less spin on the ball, especially um, into the wind. So um, it's also good to be able to move the ball right to left and left to right if you're that advanced um, to, to counter crosswinds if that's what you need to do on a particular hole, a particular shot. So um, yeah, there's there's lots to lots to playing in the wind and. It seems like every time it gets windy, we, we kind of have to um, relearn some things and, and adjust. It, that doesn't just automatically happen as soon as it starts blowing 30 or 40 miles an hour again. Definitely some good advice there, and then obviously a lot of experience on your side. Um, well, Bob, I really appreciate you joining me this week here at the back of the range. Just fascinating to listen to you after your, your illustrious career, still continuing on the Champions Tour. Uh, I'll be seeing you hopefully at the Oasis and hopefully at the uh, at the Chubb in Naples in February, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. Okay, you're welcome. It's been fun. And there you have it. Special thanks to Bob Estes for joining us this week at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. You know about our holiday deal. You know about our free towel Tuesdays. So make sure you're following along on social media. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.